it's at times kind of a surprise, and it's a pleasant surprise to a lot of believers, that God is so connected to romance and marital love and his creation of human sexuality, not just to create children, but to cherish one another. And it's unfortunate that the church has so often tried to join itself up with pop psychology, with marriage techniques and tricks, as if somehow God doesn't have that much to say about marital love, that that we have to sort of step outside the realm of the word of God. But marriage and marital love is literally the building block of God's design for humanity. It is the basis, it's the foundation. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. How did he bless them? He blessed them with marriage and with a command the very first command to the first newlyweds of all time, go make babies. That's the building block of his world. And and so it seems to be lost on the church at times that the Bible is is filled with God's heart for marriage. Another aspect that seems to be lost to the church at times that even when we use Scripture to bolster our understanding of human love and of marriage, sometimes it's lost on us that the relationship between Marriage and sexual desire and love and pleasing God are all intertwined together. They're intertwined. We're familiar with the admonitions concerning marriage in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25. Wives, submit to your husbands, verse 22. The, The summary in verse 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We're fairly familiar with that. But even that, sometimes it feels like, well, that's just a couple of verses. It doesn't really say much. In fact, we may be even less familiar with the more passionate commands of the Lord concerning pleasing God in terms of the pursuit of your spouse. In 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 2, Paul gives a detailed, no-holds-barred admonition that marital intimacy is a non-negotiable, it's a regular part of marriage. Solomon himself in Proverbs 5.18 gives a Hebrew imperative, a command from the Lord, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And in context, he's speaking of rejoicing intimately with her. He even says in the following verse to essentially be drunk in her love. In Hebrew, it's literally be led astray by her love. That men are walking through their life and his wife walks by and he goes this way because he's just distracted. That's what it ought to be. Later in our Song of Solomon series, I'm going to do a full exposition of that Proverbs 5 passage. It's so important. It's such a part of Song of Solomon as well. But I think most obviously when we tend to maybe disconnect marital love from the Bible and from God's will and from pleasing God, we're reminded that God has given an entire book of the Bible as being devoted to marital love. To romantic love, and it's not couched in terms of a set of commands. There, it's, it's given as a model, as an example, a, a heroic level love story meant to challenge us and inspire us. But most of all, what Song of Solomon does is it gives us God's heart. It gives us God's view and His design for marital love. And if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've humbly repented of your sins and in humility, asked for forgiveness. If you're regenerate, if you're born again, 
then you desire to please God. Your heart yearns to please God. You desire to obey Him. Jesus said that if you love Him, you obey His commandments, not to get His love, but because you have His love, because you possess salvation. You belong to Him because of His atoning sacrifice on the cross. Now, to a certain degree, the unbeliever can take the biblical principles concerning marriage and and apply them. I mean, after all, God gave marriage as a gift to humanity, not just a gift to Christians. Unbelievers can have marriages that are loving and precious. They're bonded together in the mysterious union of marriage. That's how we're created in the image of God. But sadly, that's the best thing they'll ever experience. For the Christian, marriage is a flower that absolutely blossoms in so many ways, completely unavailable to the lost person. Because of what the Bible teaches, how is marriage different for the saved than it is for the lost? I want to just kind of get into this and and give you a few ways that, that marriage is completely different for the Christian. The Christian's motivation is different, first of all. Christian's motivation is different. Our motivation in our marriage is not to be happy. It's not to get what I want. It's not to have the eternal pursuit of getting my needs met. I mean, what are we doing? Are we keeping score and you get to the end of your life? I'm sorry, I expected you to meet one million of my needs. You only made it to 999,000. Fail. No, that's not our motivation. Our motivation is to please our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. And marriage is a vehicle by which we please Christ. That's the key to marriage, to please the Lord by doing all you can to please the other, serving the other. And so the Christian's motivation is different. The Christian's perspective is different. Our perspective is different. It's eternal. Sylvia and I were talking the other evening about the fact that we will spend eternity together. And yes, Jesus said that in the coming kingdom there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage. And we understand this. First of all, marriage forms a picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. We won't need the picture anymore. Christ is with the church. And second, marriage is partly to be a help to one another. That help won't be necessary in a perfected world in the presence of our Savior when we're living in sinless perfection. But our perspective is is eternal. Many married couples have said, I will love you forever. But the lost married couple will actually be separated forever. Only the Christian couple can truly make this claim that I will love you forever. Sylvia and I have made many plans as to which gate we're going to meet at and all of that. Maybe there's no marriage, but she'll still be my best friend. Our motivation is different. Our perspective is different. The Christian's bonding is different. Our bonding is different. You're not just husband and wife. You're brother and sister in the Lord. That's a whole new level of of joy. You can enjoy that sweet fellowship of both being enamored with the gracious Savior who plucked you out of your sin, out of your own state of wretchedness and condemnation before God. You're not just enjoying one another as husband and wife. You're enjoying one another as, as fellow believers. And you're not trying to improve the other person so that you can be happier. You're trying to sanctify the other person so they can be more like Christ. Completely different motivation. And if you both agree to that setup, you both grow in the Lord. I think other than the word of God, a marriage is the greatest way to become more like Christ. 
Not only is our motivation, our perspective, our bonding different, the Christian's mission is different. Our mission is different. Our marriages aren't just to be together and enjoy one another and, and, and have children. Our marriages are tools in the hand of God to not only serve our children, but for a much longer time than you'll have children in your home to serve the church. We think about in the book of Acts, the, the heroic couple Priscilla and Aquila, famous in the New Testament for diligently serving the church, using their marriage as a tool. They weren't just enamored with each other. They were enamored with Christ together. And so their marriage was useful to the Lord. And finally, the Christian's acknowledgement is different. Our acknowledgement is different. Ultimately, the unbelievers, even in satisfying marriage, they don't give glory to God for their marriage. Uh, They might use the phrase, well, I thank God for my husband or I thank God for my wife. But theologically, the lost person in a state of rebellion cannot give true glory to God. And it is offensive to God when somebody says, I thank God for my wife when I won't repent of my sin and acknowledge that I need a Savior. But the Christian gives God glory and acknowledgement for his design of marriage and sexuality and love and, and this mysterious and glorious woven tapestry where marriage, sexuality, and love are woven together. And listen to this, when the tapestry is woven well, as a picture emerges on this tapestry, the picture that emerges is God's love for His people, Christ's love for the church. And so we want as accurate a picture as possible, don't we? And this includes the aggressive pursuit of the love of your life. So our motivation, our perspective, our bonding, our mission, our acknowledgement, it's all different. It's spiritual, it's heavenly, it's godly. Now, why talk about the fact that marriage, sexuality, and love are are given by God? That He's to receive glory for these things? Well, because right here in our text, we're going to see glory and honor being given to God. But it's subtle. And I'm going to put that aside and let you wait for that. We'll get to that later. That's more the subtle part. But for now, the more obvious topic in the text we're considering tonight is the awakening love of Shulamith, the country farmer's daughter, as she responds to Solomon's love. And and this is very instructive to us, and we'll divide our thoughts into two parts. Very simply, first, Solomon's ingredients for awakening love in Shulamith. Solomon's ingredients for awakening love in Shulamith, and all the young men listening to this should sharpen their pencils. And then Shulamith's responses. How does she respond? Now, why is this so important? This is important because we're still in the section of Song of Solomon before their marriage. And he is winning her heart. And we've seen them becoming good friends and and closer and closer. But now he gets serious. And now we see some commitments being made. And he's going to awaken love in her. And we're going to just look at the ingredients that he uses to awaken love in Shulamith. And there's three of them as we go. First of all, His picture of her. His picture of her. Now let me back up just for a minute as we look at the ingredients for awakening love. I I have to say this. This will also answer a couple of other questions that are more of interest broadly. What awakens love in a young woman? And might I say this for all of us who are married, this still awakens love in our wives. It's not like this quits working. Or it may also answer the question, what should a young woman allow to awaken love in her? I love talking to young ladies. And sometimes I'll ask them, how do you know when you've met Mr. Right? 
Usually the answer is, I don't know. Well, tonight's going to answer that question. Now, we're going to stroll through this text verse by verse because there's a story here. There's a specific event unfolding in these verses. But as we first look at his picture of her, I have to tell you this. In verse 1, the backstory is that Shulamith has received an invitation. She's received an invitation to an event to go somewhere with Solomon. What's the invitation? We'll find out shortly. In the meantime, there's a sweet exchange between the two of them. It leads us to this first ingredient Solomon takes, which awakens love in Shulamith, his picture of her. In other words, how is he thinking about her? How does he picture her? We have a brief introductory exchange between the two of them, which once again confirms in Shulamith's heart where Solomon stands concerning her and Shulamith speaks first chapter 2 verse 1 she says I am a rose of Sharon a lily of the valleys I am a rose of Sharon a lily of the valleys what is she saying well let's take this apart Sharon was a lush and bountiful plain and it runs somewhere from where Tel Aviv is today to just south of Mount Carmel it was known for trees and forests in Solomon's day in fact it's compared to Lebanon for the forest there. It was also known for wildflowers and for the rose or the crocus of Sharon. And that was a wildflower. In fact, Isaiah 35 verse 1 says that when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom and begins transforming the earth, quote, the wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and bloom like the crocus or blossom like the rose. In other words, imagine if you've ever tried growing roses and we we grow some roses and they kind of go okay, but imagine wild roses everywhere. And so she says, I'm like that. I'm, I'm a wild rose. It's important To understand that she's not saying, I'm a cultivated florist flower. I'm a wildflower. In other words, she has a natural beauty and natural appeal. She's not denying this. But remember the context of Song of Solomon. It takes place at the same time that Solomon is being married off in political alliances, political marriages, especially his first to Naamah, the Ammonite princess. In other words... Shulamith is saying that she's more the wildflower versus the beautiful courtly women of the palaces of the ancient Near East, some of whose princesses were now being foisted upon Solomon for political reasons. Shulamith is a sun-roasted, hard-working, beautiful farmer's daughter. She's not the carefully cherished and protected court royalty. In fact, she says that she's just one of the lily of the valleys, one of the lilies, one of the many flowers to be seen. In other words, she's saying, oh, I'm nothing special. Now, when a woman says to a man, oh, I'm nothing special, what is she hoping for? And Solomon gives it to her. Affirmation that, yes, you are, in fact, something special. Verse 2. Now Solomon speaks. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. He stays with the same metaphor, the lily, the flower. And he says, you're like a lily among brambles. Now, what are brambles? The bramble bush of of Palestine is sometimes just called brambles. And brambles are full of thorns and unhappiness. It's just basically a big weed that serves no purpose except to remind anyone who walks through them that we live in a cursed world with a cursed nature. 
And so when Shulamith says, I'm nothing special, I'm just one lily of the valley, Solomon says, well, if you're a lily, you're like a lily in the middle of a thorn bush, a lily in the middle of all the brambles. You're the single rose. You're the one flower. You're the only flower among a field of thorny weeds. And so to Solomon, Shulamith is not just another flower. She's the only flower in a meadow full of miserable barbs and stickers. Now, given the fact that Solomon was already having to marry foreign women for political reasons, and again, that's something we have trouble comprehending in our culture, it would be all the more important for Shulamith to know that she alone is the love of his life. By the way, just a slight side note here, and this is not, this is not coincidental. This picture here conjures up a very key theological point for us. Brambles are thorny. And they summon up for us images of the curse of sin. God declared to Adam in the Garden of Eden that because Adam had rebelled against God, the ground, instead of easily yielding glorious produce, Genesis 3.18 said, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And so Solomon's declaration that Shulamith is like a, a flower in a field of thorns, this has theological significance in the context of Song of Solomon, which is all about gardens and vineyards. Why is this so important? Listen carefully. There's a theological principle here that's so key concerning our marriages. He views her. And by extension, marriage in general is to be viewed this way. He views her as being a partial reversing of the curse of sin. In fact, we can prove this. In chapter 4 of the couple's wedding night, it's a living picture of the pre-curse ideal of marriage. In chapter 4, Solomon literally describes Shulamith's entire naked body in the freedom of marriage, which harkens back to the days before the curse. What did the book of Genesis chapter 2 say before the curse? Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so this harkens back to a time before the curse, that your marriage is supposed to be a little relief from the curse. The amount of marriage counseling that I've done over the years would indicate otherwise, wouldn't it? And as we allow sin to rule in our marriages, it becomes part of the curse instead of relief from the curse. But ideally, it should be a relief from the curse. And so Solomon's telling Shulamith that she's not one of the lilies of the valley. She's not merely a wildflower. She is the lily among the brambles. His heart is for her. This is a key principle for us. It's critically important for a woman to know where she stands in the heart and mind of her man. This is reflective of how Solomon has chosen to think about her. He cherishes her. He cultivates loving thoughts of her, special thoughts of her. He thinks the best of her. He sees her in a light that no one else does. And while Shulamith no doubt possessed a natural beauty, she says so herself, that isn't the only factor for Solomon. He's stating that he sees her as his one true love. Now I want to speak to unmarried men who may be listening to this. At some point with the young lady in whom you are highly interested, you've got to put it out there. And you've got to let her know that she's a lily among the brambles and that she eclipses all others in your mind. You can't use phrases like, I would be willing to consider a relationship with you. No woman wants a man who's willing You have to put it out there. And yes, you might get taken out like yesterday's trash. 
You might get shot down and crash land in a desert field. You might get deflated like four tires running over nails. But at some point, she has to know where you stand. You can't wait until she's about to walk down the aisle and holler to the back door. Hey, just to let you know, I do love you after all. This is the first step toward winning her heart. And to the unmarried young ladies, when a young man puts himself out there like that, don't dismiss that sort of expression easily. You don't have to respond to it immediately. I'm all for playing hard to get for a while. But when a young man does what Solomon did, declaring that she's at the top of the list, that alone is an endearing quality which should lead you to do some serious thinking and praying. I read a series of letters between my grandfather and grandmother in the 1930s. She was trying to decide between two young men, and my grandmother wasn't, wasn't any dummy. She kept them both kind of at arm's length. She kept them available enough that she could grab one or the other, but kept them far enough that neither of them knew who was winning. And I read these letters, and my grandfather poured it on thick. They were in two different cities, and he was writing her like every minute. He gave all the reasons why he loved her and why, why he was the better choice and that he would love her for a lifetime. And he won her heart. How did he do that? By virtue of letting her know that she was the lily among the brambles. My grandfather was essentially an uneducated man. And yet he wrote poetry worthy of Shakespeare. He was desperate. (laughs) And for us as married men, remember when you used to use words to win your wife before you were married? Did you notice that Solomon used words to express how special she is? I know we can't be all poetic who write Holy Spirit-inspired love poetry like Solomon, but you can use words to express to your wife that she's special. Now, I'll bet she wouldn't mind hearing that more than just on your anniversary in three lines in a card. Could I say this? Don't let words go unsaid. Don't let them go unsaid. Tell her or write to her how you cherish her, why you cherish her. Better yet, get in the habit of doing it regularly. What would you say to your wife if you knew this was your last conversation with her? Have that conversation every day. Our biggest relationship regrets come in the area of leaving affirmation unsaid. And listen, men, I know we're very functional at times. This isn't to give her information. This is so she can experience your love, not just know about it. She wants to experience the hearing of that information. Maybe you're not a poet, but be yourself and and use the best words you have. I mean, your most poetic words might be, honey, your love is better than a set of new tires. Okay, if she knows that's the best you've got, then she takes that as Shakespeare. But use words. Don't let words that she is the lily among the brambles go unsaid. Let her know that she is it for you. Let her know that your thoughts of her are wondrous and grateful thoughts. When was the last time you told your wife spontaneously, I just wanted you to know, I was just thinking about you. I'm so distracted by you right now, I can't even think straight. When was the last time you called her from work or texted her from work and said, I can't work, I'm thinking of you. The first ingredient Solomon uses to awaken love in Shulamith, his picture of her. The second ingredient he uses, his protectiveness over her. His protectiveness over her. Now keep in mind, we're still, we're still in this introductory section. She's received an invitation of some sort. We're still coming to that. 
And now Shulamith reflects to herself on Solomon's character. These are her thoughts of him. How does she think of him? Verse 3, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. She responds with an outdoor botanical reference of her own. She's a flower, he's a tree. Just a little note about the apple tree here. It's very poetic, but there is basically no evidence that there were any apple trees anywhere in the ancient Near East. This is more likely an apricot tree. Not as poetic, but that's what was grown in Palestine from Old Testament times. So we'll stay with the apricot tree. And like the comparison of Shulamith to the other women, Solomon is a tree compared to the other trees of the forest, the other men. Now let me tell you about the other men, then I'll tell you how we know this. The other men, or at least her view of the other men. She sees the other men around her as an unknown quantity, as unsafe. Keep in mind that, that they're living in a culture where women are viewed about one step above property. These men are those who would see her beauty as something to be used, something to be taken, something to be stolen. Not as part of a person, a human being to be loved. These would be those who would view marriage as being about getting something, not giving your life for someone else. These would be those who were like Nabal a few decades before Solomon's time. 1 Samuel 25 records that Nabal was a wealthy man married to a lovely woman, Abigail, and Nabal was a fool. His name means fool. Nabal was difficult. He was disgraceful. He was angry. He was utterly selfish. And his own wife, Abigail, described him in 1 Samuel 25 as a worthless man of folly. So Shulamith is wary of marrying someone who will use her or abuse her, not love and cherish her. In other words, she wants to be safe and secure and protected. Now, how do we know this? Because there's a very key word picture that she uses here. She says, with great delight, I sat in his shadow. This is a phrase that anybody in the ancient Near East listening would know means safety. It means coolness. It means security. It means peace. It means protection. And notice, keeping with the tree metaphor, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. This is often taken as a reference of sexual innuendo. And yes, in Song of Solomon, there are plenty of overt references to sexuality in the song, but this isn't one of them. This is not one of them. His fruit, in this case, is still related to his uniqueness to her. Remember, they're expressing commitment to one another here. Fruit here is used in the same way it is in the New Testament, which speaks of bearing spiritual fruit, that the results of your spiritual condition are observable. She can see his godly character. What is the fruit of Solomon? He's like the shadow of the apricot tree compared to the unsafe other young men. That she knows he's reliable, he's trustworthy, he's dependable, he's protective. What's the last phrase saying? His his fruit was sweet to my taste. It's just saying his character leaves a sweet taste in my mouth. This is important because love can't be built purely on sentiment, on feeling. It has to be built on character and strength and quality. Think about the Proverbs 31 woman. She is described as a worker. She brings value. She's not just a pretty face. As one of my mentors, as a young man, used to say to all of us young men, he would say, don't marry Barbie. 
Don't marry someone who is all external and no value. When Solomon brings value, he brings the value of trustworthiness, of protectiveness. And remember, this is a world in which women are are treated on the level of property. And so this is a major indicator of Solomon's godliness that he views her as valuable and worth protecting. That would be unusual. And notice, by the way, that not only does she take notice of his character, she is also using words to express this. She's affirming in her thoughts and with her words. This is a useful lesson, ladies, how, how sad it is when this degrades to Proverbs 21.9, when the man says it is better to live in the corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And Solomon isn't perfect, but she is choosing to see and express the best in Solomon. I actually find it pretty amazing that in the face of competing with other women, potentially other wives, she's still gracious and she wins his heart as well as him winning hers. But the big note, the crescendo here, the, the, the high point, the crescendo here is that she sits in his shadow, she says, with great delight in his safety and in his protection. This is so important. Our culture has lost the great delight of husbands being their wives' protectors. That sounds so old-fashioned, doesn't it? Just to say that out loud. What does that mean? It means don't make her fight the world. Don't make her face things that you can face for her. When she has to face that which is difficult, when she has to do it, then walk through it with her. It always makes me sad when I see in 40-degree weather some poor freezing woman getting gas in her car while her husband sits in the car texting. Instead, live in the marriage where she can see a man of faith who trusts the Lord. That, by the way, is the biggest protection. That's the biggest shade, being a man of faith. Your love should feel like a shade and a coolness on a hot day. And, and ladies, you know this. Our culture has taught you to be independent. Our culture has taught you to rely on no one and to be self-everything. Did you know that's actually completely contrary to God's design for marriage? We are to be dependent upon one another in our families. Even the government knows that. On your tax forms, what are they called? Dependence. And fundamentally, although our culture has tried to make you forget this, God made women in the context of marriage to need the protective help and provision of a man. Our culture has all but tried to erase this, but that's still the heart of womanhood, and you have to fight for this. As a matter of fact, now in our culture, so many men are believing the message of our culture that men are trying to be women. Men, what do you do that's manly? What do you do that stretches yourself, that challenges yourself, that causes sweat, that causes pain, that takes you to the limits of what you've never done before? What do you do that causes you to drop to your knees and beg God for help? Men take risks. Men do difficult things. And men are fiercely loyal to those in their care. Funniest little YouTube video I've ever seen, but it illustrates this point. A big old southern boy sitting in his easy chair watching a game on TV. And the joke is, and it's played as a joke, is that one of the teenagers goes and mouths off to mom. 
And the teenager goes right behind into mom and says uh, something about, uh, no, I'm not going to do what you just said. And this guy comes unglued. He, a big old boy, jumps up out of his chair and he's coming and he's going to kill this kid in about four seconds. Because nobody speaks to his wife that way. Not all bad, is that? Here's an irony for you. The unsaved women of the world have been trying for the past 50 years to feminize the men of the world, but at their core, women don't like feminized men. They don't like the product they've created. Here's the basic structure and function of marriage, according to Scripture. A man living his life so as to stretch and challenge himself to achieve, to accomplish, to work hard, and his wife right by his side doing all in her power to make him successful. They're a team. They're a unit. He's protecting and providing. And she's receiving and helping. If I had one minute, if somebody said, Steve, you have one minute to plead with the Christian marriages in your church, what would you say? I I would plead with you, don't let the world tell you how to be married. They have nothing to say. In fact, if the world says it, do the opposite and you're probably obeying Christ. Have the courage to create a biblical model of marriage in your home and live it out. Who cares what everyone else is doing? True manliness is protective. It says, I want to be in your corner for a lifetime. It says, I want to be your best friend, your ally, your counselor, your friend, your lover, your companion. I want to be devoted to you. First ingredient Solomon uses to awaken love, his picture of her. The second, his protectiveness over her. And the third ingredient we'll call his proclamation to her. His proclamation to her. Now we get to see what the invitation is about. What is the event? Verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. This is a specific location. The banqueting house. It's some place they both know. What is banqueting house? Literally in Hebrew, it's the house of wine. The house of wine. It's the only time this phrase is used in the Bible. We have some close seconds. There's the house of wine drinking in Esther 7. We have the drinking house in Ecclesiastes 7 too. Now this isn't a bar. This is something much more uh, much more familiar even to us. This was a banquet hall located out in the vineyards. It was a place for making, storing, and tasting wine. We live in the Central Valley of California. We drive by those all the time, don't we? The vineyards of the Central Valley here, as you go toward the coast, have wine tasting centers and restaurants connected to the vineyards. And this is the same thing. How did you sell your wine? You had a place to invite customers to come taste it. He's taken her to the house of wine, the house of wine. They've gone to a banquet that he's giving in honor of his love for her. It's the closest thing they have to a restaurant date. And remember, we said this a few weeks ago, Solomon owns the vineyard that her family leases and works. So it's his house of wine. It's his banqueting house. He owns it. And her friends are there too. How do we know this? She speaks to them in verse 7, but the other way we know is that that she says, his banner over me is love. What is his banner? A banner is a specific word that means a standard, a flag. 
to identify military units or, or tribes, to rally and gather troops together. It's very, very public. There's nothing private about it. Solomon wants the world to know of his love for Shulamith. He's happy to have the world see his love. And so when Shulamith arrives at the house of wine, at the banqueting house, her friends are present. A banquet is being served and wine is being served. And Solomon is making a public proclamation of his love for Shulamith. As a matter of fact, this is, we have very good evidence to believe this is his official betrothal. Different than our engagement. They would be legally bound to one another, even requiring a divorce now to separate. And so, of course, she's thrilled. He's cast his lot with her. He's creating security and and proof of his love for her. She's not his secret mistress. She was a virgin whom he respected and would marry. And considering that he was already having to engage in political marriages, this is huge for him to publicly declare, you are the lily You are the lily among the brambles. You are my one true love. And think about this little delicious irony. You remember in chapter 1, her complaint that her brothers used to force her to work in the scorching sun in the vineyards, and now she is the guest of honor in the upscale banqueting house which the tenant farmers never got to even see. Solomon's love for her has taken her from a common field worker to the princess of the vineyards. There's benefit to his love. There's value to his love besides just emotion and sentiment. And what's he accomplishing with this proclamation? After having demonstrated his picture of her, showing his protectiveness over her, now he's proclaiming to her and to all in attendance that this banquet, that his heart belongs to her and her alone. That is what's called winning a woman's heart. And how does Shulamith respond? We've looked at Solomon's ingredients to awaken her love. Let's look briefly at her response. What do we see? First, we see a receptive young woman. We see a receptive young woman. Verse 5, Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples or apricots, for I am sick with love. Ladies, how would any of you respond to a young man providing an entire banquet with all your friends so that he can publicly tell you that you are the lily among the brambles? Well, like any woman, she responds by being lovesick. This is a way of saying she's swooning. She's feeling wonderful. In fact, in Hebrew, it's almost confusing. When she says, I am sick with love, the I is emphatic. It would read literally, I am sick with love, am I? You can almost see the birds and the stars going around her head right then. By the way, she's responding to his words of kindness. Men, words of kindness. They're they're your secret, important principle here. And of course, both should initiate kindness and she'll do that later in Song of Solomon. But in this case, she's responding to him. Now, both raisins and the apricots, probably not apples here, they were both believed to create a mood for intimacy, to be aphrodisiacs. And that's generally how this text is, is usually taken, that with a smile and a snicker, we see that now she's making sexual references. But there's two major reasons that she's not doing that. This is not an overt or obvious reference to these foods as aphrodisiacs. First of all, this is in a public setting. And there's a, there's a major cultural taboo against public affection between men and women. Chapter 8, verse 1 makes this very clear. And so this request is, is not openly sexual in nature. And in fact, verse 7 is going to indicate she's guarding herself 
Then the second reason she's not seeing these as aphrodisiacs, she's already sick with love. Who needs aphrodisiacs? The birds and the stars are already going. She's not saying, bring me more. At most, this is a subtle reference. But if we simply take this at face value, let the text speak for itself, she's asking for food. Why is she asking for food? Because her knees are weak with love and her head is swimming and she's dizzy. She's swooning and she needs sustenance. Now I know all of us who are married, us guys, we go, I can't remember the last time my wife swooned. I don't even remember how that works. Life sets in and this can't happen every week. And when you go on a date to In-N-Out Burger, that's not exactly the house of wine. And she probably won't be yelling, bring more fries, I'm swooning here. (laughs) But do you remember how it started? Do you remember your awakening love for your spouse? Do you remember the sleepless nights? Do you remember sweating bullets wondering if she would say yes to that first date? Do you remember the thrill of holding her hand for the first time? Do you remember the thrill of watching her walk down the aisle? Do you remember the thrill of putting that ring on her finger? The memory of that intense time is precious and it acts as a foundation for years and years of stable and wondrous closeness together. And occasionally you'll still swoon sometimes too. But not only do we see a receptive young woman, second, we see an awakened young woman. And now, at the right time, at the right time, we finally see a more obvious reference to the desire that's growing in her. Verse 6, His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Now she's being more blunt about her desires, but you notice she's not expressing them at this level directly to him. She's more, most likely, these are her thoughts. They're beginning to go here. She's dealing with this growing desire for Solomon. And yes, desire which could overwhelm her virtue and and determination to be pure for her wedding day. But now her desire is at the right time. Remember, this this is probably an evening where she becomes engaged. She's betrothed to Solomon. And so now she allows her thoughts to begin to anticipate marital love. Verse 6 is very personal. It's very intimate. In verse 3, she pictures sitting with Solomon. Now, verse 6, she pictures them laying down together, cuddling, as it were. Her desire is growing. They're friends, and she desires them to be lovers toward one another as well. And now that his proclamation has been made public, now that he has made known his intention to marry her, she allows her mind to go to that wonderful place of anticipation. But right at this glorious moment when she's sensing this growing desire, this magical moment, this mysterious moment where she's swooning and she's calling for for raisins and apples or apricots and she's trying to regain composure, you can almost hear a a beautiful symphony going on in the background and you you can see the delightful setting of this banquet. But I want you to picture the mystery and the magic of this moment coming to a grinding halt. Picture the sound of a window shattering. Picture car alarms going off. Picture waking up in the middle of a terrific dream. Picture a hot shower suddenly turning cold. Picture a walk through a mountain meadow ending by getting stung by a bee. Picture a symphony by Beethoven being accompanied by a kazoo. 
Picture a car slamming on the brakes with the sound of shattering glass at the end. Because right here in this romantic moment when the symphony is playing, she turns to her friends and pleads with them in verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She's in this glorious moment that's at the right time for her. She's ready. But she implores her friends, but not you, not yet. Guard your heart. Now she stays with the song's theme of the outdoors and she says, I adjure you, meaning take an oath, make a promise, swear by the gazelles of the does of the field. And then she says, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now this is very interesting because in Hebrew it's the same word. Twice, just in two different forms, two different emphases. It's the same root word. Do not stir up is a form that means don't repeatedly cause your own heart to be stirred up with love and desire. Don't cultivate those desires before it's time. And then do not awaken love. Same verb, different form that means don't do anything that will result in awakened love. Let me put it to you this way. Don't do anything that will cause it and don't do anything that will cause you to cause it. Stay away, 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 away. Shulamith is being emphatic and repetitive about the dangers of premarital sexual arousal and activity. In fact, her reference to the gazelles gives us another clue. The next major section of the poem is bookended by the term gazelle, called an inclusio. It marks out a unit or a section. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, she likens Solomon to a gazelle leaping over the mountains to come toward her, to come to her. And at the end of this section, in verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17, she says, Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Now, this is almost universally taken to be an expression of her desire to be with with him in intimacy, maybe even making a, a veiled reference to her own body, the young stag on cleft mountains. The problem is, is that in Hebrew, she's not saying, turn toward my body and be like a gazelle. In Hebrew, she's saying, turn away and run away from my body and be like a gazelle. In other words, get away from me before we do something we'll both regret. So in verses 8 and 9, here comes my beloved. He's like a gazelle. They interact for a while. She says, this is dangerous. Be like a gazelle and get out of here. And so she's telling the young ladies, be like the gazelle. Run away from the sexual temptation that premature love can bring. Ecclesiastes 3, 5, Solomon himself writes that there is a time to to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. In other words, patience now and passion later. By the way, did you notice how love is personified like it's an independent creature with a mind of its own, a desire of its own? Sexuality outside of marriage becomes like a destructive creature which destroys. It's like Gollum just following you around. But Shulamith is modeling, waiting for the right time such that God's will is kept and and the couple may enjoy the oneness and the mystery of their love together. Now remember, we started talking about the fact that marriage, sexuality, and love are given by God and that he's to receive glory for these things. I want to return to this idea. 
I mentioned to you that here in our text we see the glory and honor being given to God, but it's subtle, it's poetic, but it is most definitely present. I'd like to ask you to bear with me while we go into some important detail. You remember the gazelles and the does of verse 7, and there's an oath. Why is she having them swear by animals? Shulamith is making a play on words that any Hebrew child would know this immediately because of the similarity of sounds. Here's the detail I want you to bear with me. Hebrew is built on a system of basically three-letter words made almost exclusively of consonants. And by subtly changing vowel pronunciations, an entirely different word can be formed, and yet you still hear the similarity. And when Shulamith tells her young friends that she adjures them, she places them under oath by the gazelles or the does of the field, this would be very similar And the reference would be immediately noted that these are the same words as I adjure you by Yahweh of the hosts and God the Almighty One. No one in a Hebrew-speaking Israelite audience would miss this allusion, miss this reference. This is what's called a circumlocution, an indirect reference to God. Now we should note that there's only one book of the Bible which does not reference the divine name of God. That is the book of Esther And this is obvious since the main theme of the book of Esther is that God works behind the scenes in his providential sovereignty. The Song of Solomon barely references God. Chapter 8, verse 6 contains a shortened version of the divine name, Yahweh, as Yah. But it still retains a significance in worship that the stamp of God is on this romance, and though at this moment it's in the background. And so totally in keeping with the focus on on romance, on marriage, on on sensuality even, Shulamith gives a circumlocution, an indirect reference. In Song of Solomon, the focus is on the romance as the God-ordained expression of love for God. But Shulamith, while still retaining the romantic tone and the tenor of the moment, while staying with the outdoor nature theme of the story, she gets the message across. God's fingerprints are on this romance. And so when she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by Yahweh of the hosts, by God the Almighty One, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She is pointing out that God has designed marriage, love, and sexuality, and only by staying in His design do you stay in His will. The motivation for sexual purity is to please God. The motivation for marital love is to please God. We've learned a lot tonight. I'd like to leave you with a final thought and our usual assignments. I'm going to give you the assignments first and then one final thought. It's a little loftier even than what we've talked about tonight so far. Assignments first. I'd like to speak to you who are married. I'd like to challenge you that it's time to do an honest evaluation of the use of your words in your marriage. People say uh, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. There's no truth to that, is there? Do you positively esteem and build up and make certain the other knows that she is the lily among the brambles or that he knows that he's the apricot tree among the forest? My hope, my assignment for you this week It's very personal that in a time between you and the Lord, I would ask you to honestly confess how you've degraded to not giving those expressions and even falling into the destructive habit of continual correction and criticism which says, actually you are the brambles and you are the terrible other trees of the forest. 
Instead, use words to build each other up. And by the way, how did Solomon do it? He did it in front of others. For the not yet married, in our family, for years, we've had something, not our to-do list, but we call it the I-do list. It's very simply, and I've talked to lots of teenagers about this, the I-do list is what needs to happen in your life to be ready to be married. How do you need to be pleasing to the Lord? And then when you're well on your way to completing that list, young men, find a wife. Young women, say yes. It's really that simple. A worthy young man who has this picture of you, his protectiveness of you, and this proclamation about you together. I do want to give you a final thought. God's fingerprints in the text of Solomon are are subtle. But there is a particular passage that we read tonight that has a well-known line that even some hymns that we sing have referenced. There are hymns which reference the banqueting house, the house of wine. And to be honest, these hymns are referencing this by interpreting Song of Solomon in an allegorical sense, which we talked about in some of our introductory messages, the allegorical sense of Christ and his people. And we reject the allegorical interpretation. But the principle is universal. The principle is this, that just as Solomon transformed a lowly vineyard worker who never saw the inside of Solomon's house of wine into a guest of honor at a banquet in her honor, in the same way Christ has brought us through salvation, through forgiveness of sin, into his house, into belonging to him. And his banner over us is love. He said that he will not be ashamed of us before his father. By the way, who was probably at this banquet? Probably King David. The hymn in our hymnal, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, makes this reference in one verse from Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth, in Emmanuel's land. And so just like Shulamith was brought undeservingly into Solomon's house, we have been brought undeservingly into God's house through Christ. That's a glorious picture. And I hope that our marriages will paint that picture as well. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this, this stunning text so beautiful, so poetic, so colorful, aromatic. We can almost smell the scent of the roses and the lilies. We can taste the banquet and the wine. We can see the gathered young ladies to gather to celebrate the love of Solomon and Shulamith, an event which really happened. And while this was not a wedding feast, more of a betrothal feast, we we would guess, it does turn our hearts to a glorious marriage feast of the Lamb that is yet to come. When as the Lord Jesus promised to his disciples for the first time since the upper room before his arrest and death, he will take the cup and he will partake with us in the cup of fellowship. So we look forward to that day. In the meantime, Lord, oh Lord, I pray that our marriages would reflect 
the ideals set forth in Scripture. I pray that the words that we speak to one another would serve the purpose of glorifying and honoring God, that the words that we say could be spoken with Jesus Christ himself in the room. I pray that we would clearly tell the other, you are my rose. You are my lily among the brambles. You are the apricot tree among the trees of the forest. Lord, I pray that our marriages would be that those which glorify you and honor you. And I pray for those yet to be married. Lord, lead them to the right person. Teach them and grow them. Help them to prepare to be ready so that they too might enjoy the fruits of marriage and of painting a picture of Christ in the church, a living portrait that would serve your purposes and serve your kingdom for many years to come. We thank you for this text. We thank you and praise you for the gift of marriage. We pray in Christ's name, amen.